Welcome to All Are Welcome, an Evergreen Christian Church podcast. Today, we have a sermon for you. Please join us in listening. A reading from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I think this is the Sunday that most pastors dread. Not Easter Sunday, not the Sunday surrounding Christmas, not Super Bowl Sunday, but the Sunday after a presidential election, especially a very contentious presidential election. Because what do you say to a church that is potentially divided over the results of an election, especially Today, when we don't know, this is Thursday on filming, we don't know the results of the election. And what do you say to a nation that is definitely divided over the results of an election, results that are continually being falsely accused of being frauded? No doubt from pulpits and pundits and politicians, there will be calls for unity but I'm suspicious of hasty calls for unity. Too often, calls for unity are empty words. And too often, calls for unity are actually calls for uniformity. And unity requires much more than empty words. Unity requires justice and equity. For our country to be united, we must first have respect and act in decency towards every single person in this country. How can we possibly make calls for unity when groups of people in this country are still disadvantaged and marginalized in nearly every aspect of their lives? How do we make calls for unity when women are paid less than men and women of color are paid even less than white women? There can't be unity unless we ease the burden of marginalized people. There can't be unity if we merely silence dissenting opinions, dissenting opinions which way too often are just calls for people to recognize the lives of people that do not look or act like them. We cannot ask people to be united if the majority of people are not willing to grant everybody basic rights and privileges. Rights and privileges which aren't even ours to grant. We can't ask for people to be united when many people have their protections of their rights enclosed in court cases that can easily be overturned 
a worry that a majority group does not have to deal with every day. You can't ask the downtrodden and the put upon and the marginalized and the oppressed to be united so that we have a sense of comfort. You can't ask them to ignore their suffering and to no longer speak up for themselves so we feel united. We also can't have unity without vision. What is unity if there's no goal or vision to be united in? What's the point of a united people when they cannot see what it is they are united for? Unity without vision is actually a threat. Unity without vision means that there are groups willing to do whatever as long as they're doing it together. Vision gives us a moral north star that keeps us honest. Vision gives us guidelines and parameters that keep us on track and accountable. I'm suspicious of hasty and easy calls to unity which do not fully accommodate for what must be done for us to be united. And I believe unity will be a goal we ever propel ourselves towards a goal we will keep working for far into the future and understanding better. Because far into the future, we'll be working to undo the conditions and systems which marginalize and oppress God's children. And far into the future, we will be working to understand one another better, understand why we choose the ideologies we do, and help each other choose ones which are less harmful to each other. And far into the future, We'll be working on a vision that truly includes all of us. It'll include all of us in its making, all of us in its doing, and bring all of us along and make all of our lives better. I'm wary of calls for unity that are hasty because true unity is a costly unity, not a cheap unity. The World Council of Churches is a body of various denominations that have come together in the name of Christian unity, but it is also a body that struggles mightily with unity, especially on moral issues. It caused the Commission on Faith and Order to write this. Moral issues and struggle often represent the line between cheap unity and costly unity. Cheap unity avoids morally contested issues because they would disturb the unity of the church. Costly unity is discovering the church's unity as a gift of pursuing justice and peace. It is often acquired at a price. Consider the struggle for independence in Nam Nambia or the anti-apartheid campaign in South Africa. Forces tried to play off Roman Catholics against Lutherans, Anglicans against Methodists, and indigenous African churches against historic denominations. Genuine unity was discovered in joint struggle, often breaking new ecumenical ground. In other cases, costly unity is precisely to transcend loyalty to blood and soil, nation and ethnic or class heritage in the name of the God who is one and whose creation is one. It is the unity of the church 
accomplished on the way of the cross, paid for by the life of Christ in the lives of the martyrs, whose witness inevitably included moral witness. This is unity which, by God's grace, breaks down dividing walls so that we might be reconciled to God and to one another. Its enemy is cheap unity. Forgiveness without repentance, baptism without discipleship, life without daily dying and rising in a household of faith, the oikos, that is to be the visible sign of God's desire for the whole inhabited earth, the oikomene. In short, these are my words, costly unity is moral and costly unity, true unity, reconciles us to God and to each other. The World Council of Churches is made up of various denominations that have many ideological and theological cracks between them. And so it is with the World Council of Churches and their unity they strive towards costly unity, so it should be with our country. I am weary of hasty calls to unity because we all may have specific grievances which need to be addressed before we really can be united. And addressing those grievances very well may be costly. This Sunday, I am not asking for us to be united but I am asking for us to work towards costly unity. In this passage from Acts, we see a community of believers who are, by all accounts, united and growing. This is one of the first mentions of what we call the early church. They met in each other's houses, they witnessed miracles and worshipped together, and they met each other's needs. Their unity did not come from political victory, did not come from calls to be united, but their unity came from meeting and sharing all they had and breaking bread together and witnessing to the acts of the apostles came from worshiping. Their unity was not from winning and telling the losers to suck it up. They didn't convert others and add to their numbers through force, but it was in their sharing, their witnessing, in being community together, that they were able to enjoy each other's favor. Madeline Olney let me borrow a book of quotes from Mr. Rogers, and he once said, the real issue in life is not how many blessings we have, but what we do with our blessings. Some people have many blessings and hoard them. Some have few and give everything away. And what we observe from the believers in Acts is a group of Christians who may not have had many blessings and yet still chose to give what they had away and to hold all in common and to be uniting and growing together. While these are not ordinary times, in the liturgical calendar of the church, we are in what is called ordinary time, the time after Pentecost, before Christmas, before Advent. We often mark this ordinary time through green liturgical vestments, the green cloth on the table, the green banner hanging from the lectern. During ordinary time, 
we decorate our churches with green. And it was tempting, maybe even would have been easy to write a sermon about being united in the green of ordinary time, that when we come to church, we don't come as red or blue people or purple independent people, but we come to the green of ordinary time. But that didn't feel right. First, there's a green party in the USA, and while statistically unlikely anybody attending this service or watching this video voted green party, it is still a possibility. And more importantly than that, I didn't feel right for other reasons. We ask, or at least I earnestly pray, that we come to church with our full selves. We come in our joy, or with broken hearts, or as retired persons, or parents, or grandparents, as sons and daughters. We come in ways that may not be apparent to the people in the congregation about us. We come marked by our age and our skin color, our gender appearances. We come with a multitude of belongings and identities, and I believe we miss something if we pretend to leave that at the door. And that means we come as Republicans or Democrats or Independents or maybe even people that voted for Kanye West. And I think when we come to church bringing all these identities with us, we know we come to church because there is something that lays claim over all of these identities, something we understand these identities through. Because we are Christians, we filter all other parts of our life through our understanding of God's love. And if we don't, and maybe this is easy for me to say because I'm a pastor, but if we don't, I think we should. We should see all other aspects of our life through Christ's grace and love. We should understand ourselves as rooted in the God who is the ground of being. We should understand ourselves as Christian. And coming to church is a reminder of that. We should understand ourselves as loved by the God who made us. As Christians, we are followers of the life, ministry, and teachings of Jesus Christ. And Jesus made it abundantly clear in the Gospel of Luke what his ministry was. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because God has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. God has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As recipients of God's love, it is clear what is required of us. From Micah 6, 8, it is said that God does not require sacrifice of firstborns or thousands of rams, but God has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you, Micah says, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We all knew that election night might change a lot. I think we also all knew the election would not change everything. There will still be hungry people looking to feed their families. There are still people in abusive relationships that need safety. There are still fires burning in our country. Our mother earth is still growing, groaning, groaning. There are still captives the blind still need sight. 
the oppressed need freed. And still there is the need for the year of the Lord's favor to be proclaimed. I am not asking you to forget your politics or pretend the election never happened. Nor am I asking you to suddenly and hastily be united. I'm not asking you to leave your politics at the door, but I am asking you to see your politics through the Christ's grace and an understanding of God's love. I am asking you to know that this election will change our lives and know also that we will change our lives by sharing in all that we have with one another and by seeing a need and doing all we possibly can to meet it. I'm not asking us to be cheaply or hastily united, but I am asking us to work towards a more true, a more costly unity, a unity of the church accomplished on the way of the cross paid for by the life of Christ and the martyrs whose witness inevitably included moral witness. I'm asking for a unity based on justice, peace, kindness, humility, and liberation. You don't have to check your identity at the door to do that. But you do have to understand your identity through God's love. And you have to reconcile yourself to your neighbor to do that. Let us reconcile and work towards a costly unity.